words that you've given her this week as she's prepared. We pray that you'd use her and that you'd guide her as she speaks. And may what she says challenge us, encourage us, and grow us in our relationship with you. Thank you. Well, I'm really, really grateful to the worship group who are now sitting in the, the seats in front of me so that I've got faces because it's really strange um, preaching to an almost empty church. But I'm really pleased to be um, here this morning and um, be able to speak to you. So um, I'm trying not to imagine that you're probably sat on the sofa in your pyjamas, um, but I hope you're sitting comfortably because I'm sure they're more comfortable than the chairs in here. So what we're looking at today is um, this passage from Acts 17. It's part of um, our series, which is looking at the whole story of the book of Acts, the early church and how it spread and grew in the years after Jesus had died, risen and ascended, and following the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And also that remembering that great commandment of Jesus to go and to be witnesses of his to the ends of the earth. And um, from Jerusalem, the ends of the earth probably um, didn't feel quite as, uh, well, they didn't seem quite as far um, as it might to us. But it, well, it certainly felt far. Paul, um, in his ministry and lifetime, probably spent about 30 years traveling around the countries of the Mediterranean. And um, in Acts, we we get these stories, these stories, that are often called Paul's missionary journeys. Now, if you, um, as a child, were in Sunday school, you may, may have taught them, you may remember maps. I'm probably aging myself terribly. Maps on the wall with, the, the, with the Paul's missionary journeys. So if you're familiar with those, or if you've ever looked in the back of your Bible during a very boring service, not that they have, we have those here, but if you've ever looked in, in those maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see... Um, Paul's journey. And this one that we're looking at now is part of Paul's second missionary journey. Probably about um, AD 49, 51, that kind of time. Um, and this, the part of Acts that it's described in is just chapters 15 to 17. So a big journey that probably took about three years, um, described in about two chapters and glossed over. We often forget how far he travelled. So in chapter 15, he's in Antioch, which is in Syria, just north of Damascus now, and he um, has parted company with Barnabas, and he moves on from there, up north, through into Turkey, and in chapter 16, travels um, much of the way through Turkey, including being imprisoned with Silas and converting the jailer's family when the earthquake frees him, if you're familiar with that story. And gradually works his way through Turkey and makes his first foray into Europe when he arrives in Macedonia, which is the part of northern Greece, which kind of runs under Bulgaria um, through to Albania. So that's Macedonia. And then he travels down through Greece, if you can imagine it, or you're following it in the, bi the map in your Bibles. Um, they go to Thessalonica, where their preaching causes a riot. And then they escape to Berea. It's quite a, a, an active story. So they're kind of in mid-Greece now, and trouble has followed them there. And so Paul is whisked off to the coast 
is whisked down to Athens, presumably hiding in a big city, leaving Silas and Timothy in Berea to face the music there. And that's where we find him in chapter 16. He's waiting for them in Athens. Now I have this kind of vision of, you know, like when you, you arrange to meet a friend in town and they're a bit late and you're kind of wandering around, you think, hope you know's in the shops, have a little look, sit down, have a coffee, text them, see where, how lo- long they're going to be. Or perhaps you're meeting um, somebody in a new city and you, you have a little wander around to see what it's like. I have that image of, of Paul wandering around Athens going, well, I don't know when they're going to turn up. So I'm going to have a little look around and see what's going on in Athens. And he's not really that impressed, to be honest. Um, This is um, Athens. Perhaps you've been there on holiday. You've seen the ruins. You've seen the statues. Now imagine that um, whole and um, lively and full of people and smells and colour. He's wandering around having a look at what Athens is like. But his big um, take-home from Athens is it's just full of idols. He's not impressed. So if you cast your mind back to your school history and those stories of the Greek gods, where there was basically a god for everything, that's what Paul's dealing with in Athens. Temples, statues, and shrines everywhere. Athens and um, the city of Corinth, which was not so far away, Uh, were thriving metropolises. They were centres for people travelling from all around the Mediterranean basin and other parts of the world too. There was trade, there was um, a a really thriving economy going on there. So it was filled with international um, business and commerce and trading and different religions. And they'd gathered in this place, along with all the the kind of indigenous Greek um, gods that we know about, And Paul is um, aware that these people um, have got, uh, are surrounded by this this evidence of some kind of faith. And Athens is also, as you probably know, the seat of philosophy, debate and rhetoric. They're mentioned in in um, in the passage already are the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, I'm not really hot on my Greek philosophy, but I recognize those names. And I know that Athens was the, the, the center, the hotbed of where these debates, where people like um, Socrates and Pliny and all those kind of those names that we might know have, have been and um, have debated. And of course, having wandered around, still waiting for Silas and Timothy, Paul decides he's going to join in this debate. It's a kind of free-for-all. People will meet in the market and they'll talk and they'll give their ideas and they'll reflect on someone else's ideas and they'll say, yes, but what about this? And that's how all these philosophies have, uh, have come about. So it says um, that they, spend, they do nothing but sit around in the forums discussing new ideas, spend all their time d- debating. And so Paul joins in and he debates with both Jews and with religious Greeks and he begins to talk to them and we're not told at this point what he's telling them but he's obviously intriguing them because they're both perturbed and interested and so in order to find out more they invite him to a meeting of the Areopagus 
the council. This is where he can put forward his ideas. And so in front of the council, Paul stands up to speak. But unlike some of his other sermons and speeches, and unlike Peter's great big barnstorming proclamations of the gospel that we've heard about earlier in Acts, Paul speaks about God and his nature, but he mentions Jesus only obliquely. He doesn't go back into the story um, of of the Jewish people as, as Peter has done in the past. He doesn't mention the cross. He uses different images and languages. He quotes a Greek poet. So what's going on? This is a very different sermon than we've heard before. Now, some theologians have suggested that this was something of a failed experiment because we don't see Paul speaking like this again. They moot that we've got nothing much to learn from this. This is an example of Paul getting it wrong and not properly preaching the gospel. He's dumbing it down a little, perhaps. We don't see thousands converted at the end of his speech. Now, I don't really think that's the case at all here. And nor do thousands, um, well, not thousands, perhaps loads of other theologians who are far more erudite and intelligent than me. I think what we learn from Paul here is someone who understands his context, understands his audience. He knows where he is. He's in Athens. Athens is synonymous with some of those greatest names in philosophical thinking. It's synonymous with idea, debate, intellectual ideas. And what we can learn from Paul here is how we approach preaching the gospel, because that is indeed what he is doing, in a way that is appropriate for the context in which we're in. What we learn here is that there isn't a template for telling people about Jesus. Now, I grew up in a generation where um, that people loved templates, a, a generation and a culture, I suppose. People loved little booklets with very, very simple ways of explaining the gospel. So some of you might be familiar with things like Journey into Life or Two Ways to Live or the Bridge Diagram. And there's nothing wrong with those per se in the right context. But sometimes we were kind of handing them out like it was, a, it was a, the answer, you know, like a template for how to speak about Jesus. But Paul isn't using a template. He doesn't go back and, and tell the whole story. He's not in a particularly Jewish culture. So he doesn't start off um, with the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all the rest of them. He starts where people are. He's aware of his context. People of Athens, I see that you're very religious. He knows that they like debate. They like new ideas. They like discovering things. Here's a place where people are thinking about the meaning of life. They're steeped in that way of reflection and thinking. And he acknowledges this. He acknowledges the mystery shrines and altars. 
He acknowledges that they know instinctively that there is something more to know, that what they see in life is not just it. And that's where he starts. Let me introduce you to this unknown God whom you're already worshipping. Let me tell you what he's about. Let me explain to you that you don't need these stones and these props and these temples, that you can know him. He's already part of you. He made the world and everything in it. All the nations were created by him. In him, we live and move and have our being. And Paul explains this to the Athenians. He helps them to see that God is all around them and they just need to know who he is and respond to him. God is not something outside of their experience. God has already been working in their lives. They just don't know how to, how to phrase it, how to articulate it. And so they have the altar to the unknown God. And having explained this, opened this up to the people, he then goes on to converse within their own framework of understanding. He talks on their level. He's not there to say, hey, you're all wrong, and I've got it right, and here's why. And sometimes we can, um, we can err onto that side of things, can't we? When we're talking about Jesus, when we're preaching, when we're, um, when we're wanting to share our faith with our friends. And, and it's done out of a, a place of, of love and, and care, because we, we, we know what we've got. We know what our relationship with God is like. We know what Jesus has done for us, and we want to share it, and we want to say, here, this is, this is the right way. This is what we've got. But to come in and say, no, actually, you're completely wrong. Here's why I'm right, is maybe not always very helpful. And Paul understands that here. He speaks to them in a way that, look, you're so nearly there. You're beginning to understand. But there are gaps. Let me fill them in. Let me, let me flesh this out. Let's talk about this together. He goes to the heart of the meaning of life, our creation, our identity in God himself. In him we live and move and have our being. And he knows that the debates that the Athenians have all the time are looking for meaning. They're looking for the heart of the matter. They're trying to work out, why are we here? What is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? Obviously, it's faulty truth. But he knows where he's going with this. And then having opened that up a little bit more and he's talked to them, he challenges them. Since we are God's offspring, since we are created by God, God is not out there. We are God's children. God knows us. And since we know, since that is the case, and since we don't need stone buildings and silver and gold and altars and whatever to know God, what are you going to do about it? We can get really hung up on, um, on our buildings, on stuff. And that's really um, very pertinent at the moment, isn't it? There are so many debates and have been really all year about whether we need to be in church. Now, it's wonderful to gather as community 
It's wonderful to be together with our brothers and sisters. Um, and that's a really important part of our, of our faith and um, our Christianity. And it's part of the gospel that we belong together. But we get very hung up on where we do that and how we do that. And that's a real live debate for us at the moment. So there's something about in this passage, in, in, in how Paul is talking to the Athenians, that is really pertinent for us at the moment too. The key thing about our relationship with God is exactly that. It's relationship. And we don't need buildings. They're a blessing. Of course they are. But we don't need buildings to have that relationship with God. We don't need to meet in a building to worship. And he challenges them further too. If you're God's offspring, how are you living? How are you letting him transform you? He calls them to repentance. And he talks in verse 31 about Jesus. He doesn't name him, but he talks about the one who was resurrected Proof of God's outworking in all of the world. The firstborn from the dead. The transformation that God offers us. He talks about how it proves God's presence in the world. That even unknown and unrecognized, God is there. And so Paul challenges the Athenians. He challenges them to recognize the God that they've been looking for. The God they've been worshipping without knowing. And you notice at the end of this, there's no um, call for the front. He doesn't get them to kneel down and pray a sinner's prayer. And yet, people want to know more. And people believe. And people understand who God is. So this isn't Paul flaking out or dumbing down. This is Paul understanding his audience and his context. And like any time the gospel is preached, rather like the parable of the sower, the seed goes out and there are different reactions. So we're told some of them mocked him. Some of them wanted to hear more and others believed. Those seeds were sown into different ground and God knows what happens to that seed. God knows and brings the growth. And when we speak out, when we preach the gospel, when we share Jesus with our friends, God knows what happens to that seed. God knows what he's doing in his time. And we've been thinking, haven't we, about what we learn from these sermons, these speeches in Acts. What is God telling us? What can we learn from Peter and from Paul? And we've already thought about how we need to be bold, how we need to rely on the Spirit to give us words. We need to tell our story. And in this passage particularly, I think what we need to remember is that we always operate in a context and in relationship. Whether that's the relationship of community, whether it's um, our one-to-one -one friendships with our, with our friends and family. 
we always operate in a context, not in a vacuum. And God is calling us to recognize that he is already working in those places. That even those places we feel are the furthest from God, he is already there. There is nowhere where he is not. And maybe he is working unrecognized and unknown, even by us. But he is at work in his world. We are all his offspring. And so what he's calling us to do is to see what he's doing and to join in. To discern what's going on. To understand. And we sometimes call this the Mitio Dei, the mission of God. God is at work in his world. He doesn't need us to help with his mission, but he calls us into it. He calls us as his offspring, as his children, to join in with his work. He wants us to recognize what he is already doing, just as Paul saw that the Greeks were worshiping the unknown God. He calls us to help people to recognize who he is, to acknowledge that he is the one in whom they and us live and move and have our being. He is at work. We are to be attentive to his spirit, to help that and not to get in the way. Today on Remembrance Sunday, we stop a moment in a year where many have been lost not just to war but to sickness and people are searching for meaning in their grief and darkness and fear and we will see around us people turning to all sorts of props and beliefs to sustain them they might be physical they might be emotional they might be spiritual How are we helping them to see that what they need, what they have, what they must recognize is God already at work in them, even in the darkest times? This weekend, we've seen a sea change in the USA and the many different reactions to it. Perhaps we've seen God's name invoked in vastly different ways on different sides. But what is God doing? What is he doing in our wider world? How do we see, how do we recognize and join in with what he is doing already? And what are the questions our friends and families are asking us as we navigate lockdown too? How are they asking them? Can we see through the surface to what is going on? Can we discern God's spirit at work and rely on him to give us the words to speak God's hope into their lives gently, contextually, but like Paul with challenge and life. We want to see lives transformed. We want to work with God, not to get in the way, but to recognize what he is doing and work with it. And sometimes as we speak, 
we will need to be Peter in Jerusalem. Throwing out the whole story, giving that great challenge. And sometimes we will see fruit like Peter saw in Jerusalem. And sometimes we will need to be Paul in Athens. Quieter, no less challenging, contextual. But most of all, we need to be us. We need to be the people God is calling us to be. His children, working with him in the strength and power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Always after a sermon, um, after worship here, we, um, we allow time for God to move, for the Spirit to move to speak to us and it's kind of different when we're all scattered um, around when you're sat on your sofas or around your kitchen table but the Holy Spirit um, doesn't worry about HDMI connections and internet bandwidth the Holy Spirit is with you wherever you are right now and so I'd like to um, us to just to pause for a moment and I want to um, just to, to ask you a couple of questions that to, to reflect on, to think about. So perhaps um, you can ask yourself and the Spirit, where are you seeing God at work in your context? And how are you sensing that he wants you to join in? It might be in your family as we're back, um, back locked in to, to various extents. Might be in your workplace if you're still working out of the home. So pray to see him working in the lives around you and ask, what are you called to do and how? Or maybe the bigger challenge for you at the moment is, is lockdown itself. And so if that's you, perhaps we can ask God to show you more of him. To show you who he is without buildings and meeting together. Just him and you. And pray that God might break into all of our lives in a new way. Lucy, could you come up and we'll just um, have a bit of music while we pray. And just in these few moments, just um, allow God to work. Know that the Holy Spirit is with you now. And ask God where he wants you to join in with what he's doing in our world.